Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. As we always do on a Tuesday, Jonathan de Berka Butler uh, has come into us uh, to bring a story from some other parts of the world. Jonathan, good afternoon. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right, Australia we're going to go to mm. first. And uh, this case about a policeman who was accused of murdering uh, an Aboriginal teenager. Yeah, it's a story that we've seen told in the past. Uh, you know, police uh, and Aborigines not getting on particularly well and police not treating um, Indigenous Australians particularly well. And as you can imagine, this particular case, uh, which the trial lasted for five weeks, um, it was something of a focal point for, you know, advocates of Aboriginal rights and Mm -hmm. the like. Um, which which they used uh, quite uh, quite significantly. Um, so the incident itself took place in the northern Northern Territory in 2019. Okay, it took place in a town called Yundumu, which has a, a majority Aboriginal community. It's about 300 kilometres from Alice Springs. Okay, and. Um, on uh, on the the day in question, uh, Constable, Constable Zachary Rolf, who's the defendant in the case, went along with a colleague of his to the house of a 19-year-old Aboriginal called Kumanje Walker. Okay, now Walker had had a significant history of various different personal troubles and troubles with the police, right? So the, the reason they went out to his house was that he had breached a court order and he was seen to be, there was also footage of him wielding an axe at other officers. So these two officers went okay. out and they said, we'll sort this guy out. Within a minute of getting there, and I've seen the footage of, of the body cams, um, they got into a fight. Uh, Walker, who was the 19-year-old Aboriginal in question, uh, stabbed uh, Zachary Wolf in, Ralph in the arm and he shot him once, Okay, which then got him onto the ground. But about two or three seconds later, he shot him again and that was followed a second later by another shot, which we don't. I don't know if that was the fatal shot or not, but okay. he, he ended up killing him. So as you can imagine, it caused an awful lot of anger and upset in the community and uh, then it went to trial, what is it, three years later. And he's been found not guilty of murdering the teenager in this particular case. Um, The jury seemed to be convinced by the defence that Ralph's argument was that he was defending both himself and his colleague. Um, The prosecution admitted and they said that the first shot was admissible, that it was okay, okay, but the second and the third shot, which happened very quickly after, shouldn't have been you know, shouldn't have been taken. He shouldn't have. He shouldn't have shot the the the, the kid. Um, but the jury disagreed, and uh, he's he's now free. I right, uh, and um, presumably this is the fact you're even telling us this. This is a controversial decision in in Australia. Oh, it is absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the the leader of the community that Walker was a member of uh, came out and said it's not a very happy day, which is an understatement for his community in in the, that part of the world. And there's you know there's quite a the horrible irony of it is that last year alone, police shootings in Australia aren't particularly, um, they don't happen that often. Okay, mm-hmm. um, Last year there was only six. Um, but three days before the verdict in this particular case, another Aboriginal teenager was shot by a policeman and he's currently fighting for his life in a hospital. So, it, it, as I said at the top, it does feed into this... Um, narrative that right, Aboriginals yeah. are very badly treated by police in the country and, you know, and in general, I would say, mm. their place in Australian society, though arguably improving, starting from a very low base, is not improving rapidly enough. 
is there uh, is there any evidence that I say a disproportionate amount of uh, Aboriginals are shot by the police or die in custody in police custody that kind of thing? There's there's some pretty interesting statistics around that actually right so they've been collecting data on that since the nineteen since the nineteen nineties right and there's been 164 police shootings now only ten of those when I say only have been uh, 10 of those victims were Aboriginal right Mm. so that's 6% of the victims only 3% of the population so you might say to yourself that's not much of a gap given that the data set isn't particularly big but if you I think what's more worrying is that 500 Aborigines since that time have died in police custody now that's either they've been shot or they died in prison because they've been beaten up or whatever maltreated and that's six times more than white people the population, the prison population, Aboriginal, the Aboriginal prison population is thirty percent, right? As okay. opposed, to, so okay. it's ten times more than yeah. their actual population in the um, in the country. Does right. that make okay. sense? Okay, so you can see an, an yeah. analogy there absolutely. to the US and African Americans. Uh, well, indeed, yeah, yeah. If you want to go that far, yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, India, we're going to go to next, and uh, there a, a missile. This missile went from India into Pakistan. Yeah. Is that? Um, you know, yeah, exactly. highly, highly dangerous thing to do. Exactly. Do, do yeah. We did not need this to happen yeah. in the current situation. OK, so I'll start off. It was an accident. OK, so right. the Indians are saying that and the Pakistanis are saying, OK, you're fine. We agree. Right. But it was a very serious accident. Right. And this happened on the 9th of March. And India only acknowledged that it happened two days later. A missile flew from the northern city of Sirsa. It went 77 miles into Pakistani territory, okay, yeah. uh, at some colossal speed and landed near the city of Mianchanu, which thankfully doesn't have much of a suburb to it, right? There's only about 90,000 people in it. So basically, the uh, Minister of Defence, uh, a man by the name of Rajnath, Rajnath Singh, told the Parliament on Tuesday that it was a regrettable um, technical malfunction during ra- routine maintenance. Uh, in, uh, a routine maintenance inspection in the city. Something went wrong, the missile launched and landed in Pakistan. But given that the two of them have not been particularly friendly ever since independence, what is it, they fought three wars, I think, over Kashmir at this stage, given the two of them have nuclear weapons... It's a, a very alarming accident, shall we say. Yeah, and did did the missile, when it landed, do any much in the way of damage? Hole in the ground. It wasn't armed, thankfully. So it ah, the, right, the, okay. the pictures that I saw of it are of effectively people standing around looking at what's just, just landed in my garden, basically. It's not nothing, nothing major. Nobody was killed. Um, and as I said, it wasn't armed, but uh, very serious. I mean, the thing that the Pakistani government were most concerned about was the fact that it went, it, it covered, covered through a flight path and could have taken a plane down. That's what they were most concerned about. Also interesting, given the tension between those two yeah. countries, that there wasn't some sort of automatic response from Pakistan yeah, that were enough, under, under attack. Yeah, you know. true enough, actually. Thank thank God in thank many God, ways that yeah. there wasn't. But there's been, you know, the high level talks about it ever since and, and Pakistan are now, look, you know, they want, full uh, view of the report that India issued I think they want to be involved in it as well and it would be hard to deny them access to that but anyway Yeah Right, uh, Cuba we're going to go to next. Yeah, we don't talk about Cuba that much but uh, um, anti-government protesters there 30 years 
Some of them are getting 30 years. Do you remember these protests that took place last July? They lasted for about two or three days. The pictures were amazing and, and all these people out protesting in Cuba in bright sunshine. It was quite something. I mean, the background to it, um, it, it was is really very simple. Um, they were at the height of their coronavirus uh, peak. Um, they had hardly any food. There was very little medicine and people were just getting sort of sick of the situation on the ground. Now, mm. the, the reason I say that and it sounds so simple is because, of course, the Cuban government have turned around and said, oh, well, this was, you know, prompted by the United States who gave money for this. And they yeah. were the ones who, who gave the marching orders for people to uh, go out and try and bring down the Cuban government, which which they were never really going to do. But I think there's another element to it as well. And that is that none of the Castros are around anymore. Okay, yeah. So there's a new guy there, um, Diaz-Canel, who has no history of involvement in the revolution. And I think he might be seen by some as being a bit more of a softer touch, although he did crack down on the 700 people, 700 plus people who were arrested after um, these particular protests. So I should say that 100 of them have been released so far, but there's about 100 more who have been sentenced to between four and 30 years in jail, right? So this comes from the Supreme Court. This isn't Reuters or anybody who's, yeah. who, who, or any human rights organisation that's saying that this is terrible. The Supreme Court have nearly boasted at the fact that over 30 people have been sentenced to 20 and 30 years in prison for next to nothing in some cases. Um, there's a 22... I'll give you one example. There's a 22-year-old who's been sentenced to 11 years for throwing rocks. Um, so uh, yeah. it seems a bit... Uh, it seems a bit over the top. Yeah, we haven't really heard of anything or, or, or cracked on like this in Cuba in, in seemingly a long time. Well, because I don't, we haven't heard of any protests like yeah, this in a long yeah. time in Cuba either. So I... I I assume that the the government there is worried. The only thing that I can say is that there there are um oh there are appeals that mm. people can take appeals. Yeah. So what I imagine will happen is the usual thing they'll go, Oh, we're very hard on you and then they'll come back and they'll reduce the sentences and probably let some people go. Yeah. When yeah. things have calmed down slightly. Yeah. At the same time you would have thought now the Castros are gone and, you know, Cuba's still um what friends Cuba has yeah. aren't doing that well. No. Uh, and so you'd think maybe they'd, they might think, well, maybe we need to kind of ease things up a bit to... Um, I don't know how much of that yeah. is. That we could be here all day, yeah. but I don't know yeah, how much could, of that yeah. is up to them. Like, yeah. Trump was awful to them. He really was. Oh, like, no, well, he was. On the ground, you yeah, know? But, you know, his predecessor went there and mm. established ties and it looked like perhaps that, you know, there might exactly. be a thawing of relation, relations yeah. which should be, you know, very much to Cuba's benefit. Absolutely. You would have thought. Yeah. Uh, right, OK. Uh, Jamaica we're going to go to mm. next. And uh, they, uh, some, they're outraged by, by some of the royals or, or these, the British royals are outraged the, by. The British royals uh, are over there at the moment. So you remember in November, of last year Barbados broke with the Queen right yeah. after a long yes. time so it's, so no longer head of state so the royals getting worried and they said I know they said well, we know what we'll do we'll send over our most popular royals over to that part of the world on a bit of a charm offensive right so the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge are over there and uh, it didn't get off to a good start actually they landed in Belize the other day on the first day of their trip and they were told to that they couldn't land their helicopter here. Uh, protesters had gathered. I think it was an environmental thing and there was a football right. pitch involved and locals said they hadn't been consulted and in the end the royals relented and said, OK, well, we'll delay the start of our tour until tomorrow. So very embarrassing uh, at the beginning. And now they're faced with Jamaican campaigners um, who have written an open letter uh, accusing the Queen of uh, perpetuating slavery, okay? And they're looking for the royals on this particular visit to acknowledge the fact and their role in the that perpetuation of slavery and to look at, at giving money back. They want reparations and they want them to uh, 
apologise for what's been done. And all of this feeds into this sort of uh, feeling in the area uh, of republicanism that is is growing, particularly in Jamaica. Mm. Um, Jamaica is celebrating 60 years of independence in August and the new government there has kind of promised that there would be a referendum at some stage during their term. I think they've only been in for a year. So uh, it's interesting to see. It looks so far as if this particular charm offensive isn't uh, isn't working. Yeah, and uh, at any point or. William and Kate going to make a speech or refer to any of this or is it just like a series of photo ops and then that'll solve the problem? So so it's it's as far as I know the the premise of them going there is an environmental tour. Right? That's what they're going they're going over to have in a look. In their at, helicopter. Yes. <laughs> to have a look at the environment in their helicopter and it is a series of photo ops. We, either way the the people that they're meeting here they're going to Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas. They are not being taken in and it's Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a backlash here. Now, mm. polls, I should mention, uh, seem to favour getting rid of the Queen in Jamaica. So ah. there was a poll taken in the Jamaican Observer back mm. in August of 2020. 55% of those people who were asked want to split from the Queen. So there you go. That's a, that's an interesting trend mm. in, in that part of the world. Uh, right. Uh, some good news. Yes. Uh, uh, Armenia <laughs> and Turkey. Uh, things things are calming down between those two countries. These guys uh, absolutely uh, hate each other. OK. And um, it's really um, a result of the Ottoman Empire. OK. So mm. the Armenians were a bit different uh, within the Ottoman Empire in that they were Christian and they had their own language, right? Yeah. And so they were easy to persecute. And, and it was a genocide. Oh, there so, was yeah. one. There was yeah. several genocides, right? Yeah. And it's absolutely disgraceful, the history of how they've been treated. But again, we don't have all day. So it looks like um, tensions between them are 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 are, are, are um, beginning to calm down, okay? Yeah. Um, and really that's down to the war that was fought in that area that is now part of Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. Do you remember there was Mm. a war there a couple of years ago? Um, And now that Armenia and Azerbaijan have settled their differences over that territory, Turkey is happy to talk with Armenia. And that's simply what's happening. Um, So they've decided, they met last Saturday. Uh, Both foreign ministers said they had a productive and constructive meeting on Saturday and that they will seek to normalise relations over the coming weeks, months and years. Right. Okay. so it's not like there's a, apart from the terrible history, but there's no... Uh, live issue between the two of them other than just a lack of diplomatic relations. At the that's moment. it, yeah. yeah. So th- that is the point, that is the important point because that situation over Nagorno-Karabakh has been resolved. Uh, Turkey always said that was the main thing that blocked um, diplomatic relations between the two and now they say they can open up. But I, I don't know, there's... I don't know, there's something more to this that just doesn't feel right and I'm not sure what it is to be yes. honest with you. <laughs> I don't know why Armenia are just a year after being defeated in that particular war and it was a defeat no matter what their politicians say are reaching out to Turkey now and looking for this um, look, looking for this I don't know if it's got something to do with Russia or what's going on there but there's there's more to come from this I think Right well I mean it could be Turkey might be the local superpower yeah. in that particular region it so it, it, it's, it's in their interest to kind of Re-establish relations Absolutely, with yeah. And when you consider that Putin was the man who brokered the peace deal between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the Armenians might, because they're very small, you yeah. know, sandwiched in between all those countries, might be hedging their bets somewhat. Yeah.
especially with what's uh, going on in other mm. parts of Europe at the moment. Uh, right, uh, Senegal, uh, where there's uh, a military operation against rebels being going on there now. You, rebels or freedom fighters, depending, yeah, depending on how you see them, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, this is the Senegalese army who announced on Sunday night that it had launched an operation against uh, rebels in a region of Senegal called Casamance. Now, Casamance is very interesting because if you look at Senegal and it's kind of, uh, if you look at it on a map, it's kind of a semicircle, but it's got a big mouth in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 uh, Gambia, of yeah. course. Okay, and so that means that this particular region is cut off from Senegal. Okay, and they've always felt that they have been not only geographically cut off, but also economically isolated as well. Right. So back in the early eighties, um, there was a movement for an independence movement uh, put together here to try and you know establish its own country. And that turned violent and there's been an ongoing war really between these uh, dissidents and uh, the government of Senegal for the last 40 years. It goes in kind of peaks and troughs. Mm. And so the latest thing was that two months ago, four Senegalese sh- soldiers were shot in, in the area and seven others were captured by rebels in, in the border with, with uh, Gambia. So the Senegalese government are taking that as, a, as an uptick in activity by this particular group. There are factions of this particular group, by the way, who are always fighting with each other. It's extremely complicated. So they say that they're going after one particular faction and they're covering it uh, and allowing themselves permission to go after this faction by saying these guys are involved in, you know, growing cannabis and illegal wood trading and all sorts of different things. So Mm. highly complex situation. Um, but they're going after them. Yeah. And, but in that part in Senegal, then, is it de facto kind of self-ruling, really, given that, or, or you know, are, the, are these dissidents widely supported the, in that the, part the, of the country? That's a great question. The answer to that is not as much as they used to be. It seems okay. that support for them has actually dwindled over the last 10 or 15 years. There's been several ceasefires and peace deals. And because ethnically the majority there are known as Jola okay Mm. that's the tribe that are there but they're joined by other smaller groups and other smaller minorities there and even though they in the early 80s were very much together they have split up into various different factions over the years so the Senegalese government with money and investment and that kind of thing have been able to divide and conquer hence they're going after one particular faction of this group at the moment. Okay, knowing and the others won't come to help them. Exactly. And right. they've even said that in their press releases, knowing indeed that the others are just as opposed at this stage to them as the Senegalese government are. Right, uh, DRC, we're going to go to next as the Democratic Republic of Congo. A train crash killed 75 people. Yeah, it's a very simple but very sad story, this one. This happened in the southeastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it was um, a carriage train so um wasn't carrying people uh if that's the right term that i'm mm. using sorry but it had 15 wagons that it was using and 12 of them were empty so you're sort of saying to yourself well how did so many people get killed and this is part of the problem there's a lack of passenger trains so people like the old united states right yeah, they yeah. used to jump on these they they jump on these trains and they travel from city to city because a lot of them don't have cars and buses and transport on roads is awful and very takes very long time and it's expensive so they jump on these trains and there was a couple of hundred people on this when it turned over seven of the carriages went down a ravine and 75 people died as a result there's scores more injured and critical in hospital as well but again and I suppose the reason for this slot, yeah. we heard nothing about this in the main news. No, absolutely not. And in DRC, does this kind of thing happen a lot? And, 
you know, with, you know, is this an, an occasion for them to say, well, we have to do something about this? Or will they? Well, it's enough pro- well, where other they get the money from? Is, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like rife with violence and it's massive, you know, this, yeah. this place. I mean, that particular journey was 264 kilometres and I did a comparison on Google Maps between Cork and Dublin and these two places, Luena and Tenke. It's a blip in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's just so vast. I mean, really, it's one of these things you could get into, but it's questionable whether it really should be a country in the first place. Because it's so big or... Because well, it's so big and yeah. it's so diverse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, it's ungovernable, yeah. really, yeah. in many respects. Yeah. And again, I suppose it's colonialism. That's another Indeed. discussion, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, right. So um, uh, what's coming up over the next week or so? Well, look, to be honest with you, I was looking for things to, to watch out for, elections in other parts of the world, but it's all Ukraine. Everybody's flying here, there and everywhere to try and sort out problems about Ukraine and make yeah. statements. And, and, and that's it, to be honest yeah, with you. That's know? what we will be hearing about yeah. over, the, over the next week. Jonathan, thanks a million. Thanks, uh, as ever, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on Newstalk. Uh, speaking about Ukraine, uh, coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to the former Government Minister Conor Lenehan about what it's like to work for an oligarch. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.